Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about that weird combination of harmony and rhythm that we call music and what makes it so great. Thanks to everyone who's been listening, who's been sharing the show and spreading the word. We've got thousands of people listening to the show now, which is really cool. I feel like there are many thousands more who would probably like it if they knew about it. So as always, if you know someone who you think would like it, spread the word. Tell your friends, tell musicians that you know, tell anybody who you think might dig the show. I really want to get it out there. And so far, it's been, you know, the listenership has been increasing with everybody who listens to the show, which is really cool. So let's keep that going. Tell people who you think might dig the show. And uh, yeah, help me get it out there. Thanks again to the people who sent the questions that I featured on last episode, which was a Q&A episode. I had a lot of fun making that episode, and it sounds like a lot of listeners liked it, so that's very cool. I'll definitely plan to do another one of those in the future. As always, if you want to send in questions, you can email them. That's probably the easiest way is to email them. Email them to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet them at me. Um, I'm at Kirk Hamilton. That's K-I-R-K Hamilton on Twitter. But uh, email is probably just the easiest way for me to keep track of everything, since, you know, Twitter is a mess. The timeline's a mess. Um, but that that is a valid way to do it as well. All right, on to this week's strong song. This is one of the most requested songs that I've gotten from listeners who send in requests for songs for me to do. It's a song that I've always really liked, but actually one that I only came to love as I learned it and listened to it over and over again uh, in preparation for this episode. And I really do love it. It's a wonderful piece of music. What makes it so cool is that it's a very simple melody and a very pretty simple combination of chords, but they're arranged in such a perfect way that they create something magical. And as that chord progression moves toward the chorus, which you may hear happening right now, you start to know where it's going to go. ABBA's Dancing Queen is one of the most iconic pop songs of all time. It still gets played everywhere. It's so widely beloved, it's ridiculous. Like I said, I was actually surprised how many people wrote me or tweeted at me to say, hey, you should do Dancing Queen by ABBA or just something by ABBA. Um, as a small side note before we get into this, I've been listening to a lot of ABBA just because I started listening to ABBA while I was prepping for this episode. ABBA was a really good band, so... If you like Dancing Queen and you like this episode, go listen to some more ABBA. Really, really good stuff. The vital stats on Dancing Queen. It was released in 1976 by ABBA on their fourth studio album, which was titled Arrival. It was written by Benny Anderson, who plays piano for ABBA, Bjorn Uveus, who plays guitar, as well as Stieg Andersen, who was their kind of legendary, iconic producer. And so the, this tune was produced by Anderson and Ulveus. In addition to those musicians, it features Rutger Gunnarsson on bass and Roger Palm on drums and percussion, as well as ABBA's two vocalists, Agnieta Foltskog and Anna Friedlingstad, uh, who go by Anna and Frida. So I might just call them Anna and Frida when I refer to them on this podcast, just because, as you may have noticed, I am not an expert in pronouncing Scandinavian names. So what makes Dancing Queen such a great song? I think that's a really good question and an interesting one, because this song is very simple in some ways 
is. In terms of form, it's very simple. It starts with the second half of the chorus, then there's a verse, then there's a chorus, then there's a verse, then there's a chorus, then there's then they're done. Um, it doesn't introduce a lot of wildly new elements over the course of it. It's not a layering exercise in the way that, you know, You Can Call Me Al or Thriller or some of the songs we've looked at are. Um, it's very straightforward. The beat is very straightforward. Just everything is very consistent throughout. But it manages to have this magic sound, this quality to it that's kind of celebratory and sad at the same time. It's a beautiful, lush song that is evocative in a way that is is really just fascinating and kind of cool to try to pin down. So what makes the song have that magical quality? I think that there are two things really that, that contribute to that. Um, the first one is the way that this song merges melody and harmony, especially on the chorus. I think that the melody to this song is very, very simple if you isolate it. But if you add harmony, and I don't just mean the chords underneath the melody, I also mean the vocal harmonies, um, it makes the it makes everything work. And I think that's always true, like that's always the case. A melody really needs harmony to inform it most of the time. And in this case, I think this is just like a really cool example of how, of how well that works. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. The other thing that makes this song work so well is there's a kind of broader concept, and that is the concept of lushness. Now, lushness sort of broadly, it means luxuriant and rich, you know. Um, in music, it has a kind of a more specific meaning, or at least to me it does. And it's it's kind of an interesting one to tease apart, because I use the word really casually a lot. I'll describe something as sounding lush without really thinking about what I mean. But what I really mean when I'm talking about lushness is this sort of, of course, a richness of sound and a richness of sort of texture, which ABBA's Dancing Queen certainly has, but it's also the sort of the presence of a certain amount of dissonance in the in the chords, in the harmonies, and um, that I think makes chords sound richer and more lush. If you're if there's more tension in the chord, if the chord has is using tense intervals and tense um, you know melodic notes like in the melody, and then resolving them in a very pleasing way, that can add a sort of rich lushness to a chord that's absent from a more straightforward and simple melody. Now before we talk about about the harmony and lush harmonies and lush melodies, I, I'd want to focus on that first thing, on just lush, like sonically lush recording, because this is such a sonically lush recording, and I want to figure out why that is. So let's just listen to the intro to this song, which is a great way of informing, you know, how we hear the entire song, because it's, like I said, it's very consistent throughout. The intro has pretty much everything that the very end of the song has. So here's the intro to Dancing Queen, and just listen and try to see how many different things you can hear. Now there is so much going on there, despite the fact that the vocals haven't even come in yet, and it's it's beautiful and really just distinct and evocative. And it's a combination of what the instruments are, you know, wh what the arrangement is, and how everything was recorded. Now, Dancing Queen was recorded in 1975 and released in 1976. It's definitely an example of a producer using Phil Spector's wall of sound technique. Phil Spector is an iconic recording engineer and producer. He worked with the Beatles, worked with a bunch of people. Um, interesting, complicated dude, currently in prison for murder anyways. Um, but he, he pioneered the 
this way of recording that use a lot of doubling of everything and a lot of sort of really big sounds that sort of mushed everything together into this almost dreamscape. It's a combination of the way things are equalized, all the reverb that's on everything, all the doubling that you're not even aware is doubling, you know, unison tracks, tracks that are the exact same part just recorded twice. It adds a sort of a thickness and this dreaminess to everything that you can really hear in uh, Dancing Queen even before the vocals come in. So let's listen to that intro again and then we'll begin to pick apart sort of what everybody's playing and how it's all been put together. Why don't we start, as we so usually do, by breaking down the beat and start there with the drum beat that Roger Palm is playing on the drums. Now, this is a kind of standard disco beat, which I thought I had a pretty good handle on just from my memory of listening to this song. But when I went back and actually listened to it and tried to recreate it myself, I found that it's actually, surprise, surprise, more interesting than you would have thought. So when I say a disco beat, what do I mean by that? Well, the disco beat is kind of right around this tempo. This song clocks in at a really solid about 100 beats per minute. And uh, that's like a kind of mid-tempo. It's good for dancing. And uh, a lot of disco tunes tended to have that kind of tempo. A lot of dance tunes in general. You can't go too fast or people can't keep up, can't go too slow, or people aren't going to like feel the pulse. So there's kind of a there's kind of a gray zone for tempos that are good for dancing. Obviously, there are exceptions, but uh, in the case of this kind of a beat, it's usually right in there. So what are those sounds? So the four sounds that I'm making are the kick drum, the snare drum, and the hi-hat. Now, in the past, I would have maybe made this beat by hitting my desk, and I'll still do that in the future, but for this, actually, I've been refurbishing my dad's 1960s drum set and figured it might actually be fun to play this thing on drums. So first, just the elements of the beat. There's the kick drum, which sounds like this. There's the hi-hat, which in this case is the, you know, the two symbols that kind of sock together, that people call them the sock symbol. And you use your foot to kind of control whether they're open or closed. And that gets you the, the kind of defining aspect of a disco beat, which is this. It's the sort of upbeat open symbol that then closes. And then of course there's the snare drum, which is hitting on two and four. That sounds like this. Okay, so let's listen back to just a couple of bars of the groove from the record and see what they're doing and then see if I can recreate it. So those few bars contain everything that the drums on this song do. There's just kind of a steady boom, stats, boom. And then every so often the snare uh, changes it up and boom, stats, boom, ta -boom ta and they go into it kind of like this. So I sat down with the drums and figured, well, that's a really easy beat. Um, I'm not much of a drummer, but I can probably handle it. And uh, I recorded it, and this is what it sounded like. So that sounded fine, but that didn't quite sound like the recording. So I went back and listened to the recording again, and I heard a few things that I didn't hear the first time. So the first thing that I notice is that the hi-hat is all the way over on the right side and it runs through the whole song over there in the right channel, just tss, 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 giving you that nice disco, you know, that nice disco bounce. But it's not over there whenever he does the little snare change up, which you can hear here, This the hi-hat actually moves to the center. So listen for it, the hi-hat is on the right and then when he does the snare change up, suddenly he hits the hi-hat in the center. 
a little thing, it's easy to miss, but it actually really changes the sound of the song. So I don't actually know how they recorded this, this is just my guess, but I think that what they did was they recorded the drums with the hi-hat closed and then only opened up the hi-hat on that little snare change up. And then they recorded a second hi-hat track separately and they panned that one over to the right. So I tried to recreate that drum beat just to see how that would sound and I got something a lot closer to what they were doing. So that's a lot closer, but there's still something missing even just in terms of the percussion. Listen one more time to a little bit of that groove and see what you can pick out what it is. I'll give you a clue, it's in the left channel. That's right, you're hearing a shaker over in the left channel. Shaker is a very simple instrument that can actually do, like a tambourine, can actually do a whole lot to change the nature of a groove. In this case, it just kind of fits into the little spaces in between the drum hits and, uh, and makes everything just kind of mix together. So now let's hear the drum groove that I did with the shaker in the left channel and see how close we've come. So that's definitely a lot closer. So I am now going to fast forward us quite a bit in my process for recreating this intro, which I actually did. Um, I put in the bass and I put in the piano and I put in the vocal parts and I basically tried to recreate uh, as best I could uh, the way that they recorded this to just try to get my head around this sort of lush wall of sound style of arranging and recording um, that then applies across the entirety of Dancing Queen. So let's listen to ABBA do the intro first and then we'll listen to my version. Here's ABBA. And now here's me doing or trying to do the same thing. What I found while doing that is something that I've found for this entire song, which is that each part in each piece has been in some way taken apart and enriched, you know, it's been spread out or made a slightly more complex or just doubled. And so everything sounds a little bit larger and a little bit richer than, um, you know, than it otherwise would if they just recorded a band playing this very in a straightforward way. I would imagine a sort of mediocre cover band would play this and they would play a straight normal disco beat and they would play everything, you know, just sort of the best they could as a four piece or a five piece and it just wouldn't have that same sound I mean obviously I, I'm not able to capture the same sound as the recording I'm not that great of an engineer and I'm not much of a drummer but I did actually get closer than I thought that I would and that was mostly just by paying really close attention to what they were doing and so you know the drums are doing the thing that I already broke down where they've added a second hi-hat track and they split it up that way there's also the shaker going the piano is doubled as well there's that beautiful you know the iconic sort of piano descending piano arpeggios that um are on a separate track from the main piano track, which is, you know, playing behind it. There is a doubled um, piano glissando that leads into the beginning, which is just beautiful. It sounds like this. Killer, killer way to begin a song. And, you know, that's also doubled. There are the vocals, which even here, there are these kind of ahs singing. And those are doubled. Both the lower octave is doubled. And I think there's another, there's a higher octave that's also doubled. So those are multiple recordings. And those are also doubled by the strings, which actually kind of sound like a Mellotron, which I talked about on the Q&A episode. But there's also strings playing that same melody. So the vocals and the strings are doubling one another. 
And then, of course, when Anna and Frida come in and start singing, they, first off, are doubling one another. They're singing in unison. And I think there's probably more than just the two tracks of them. I can't totally tease it apart, but there's a lot of vocal tracks happening when the actual voices come in. So listen to that and just be aware of how rich and dense this is. And when I start to get at that word lush, this definitely is a big part of the lushness of Dancing Queen. just beautiful. It sounds joyful and sad at the same time. It has this just inimitable quality that this song and a lot of great songs have. And it's it's that specificity of the way that they recorded everything. They really decided how they wanted everything to sound. And this is kind of a maximalist style of production. You know, it's very different from, say, someone like Prince, who chooses, you know, each instrument is very carefully placed. Or Steely Dan is a good example of a band where everything is in its perfect little space. And there's a lot of space around everything. and You can hear where everything is. This is the sort of maximalist approach of let's put, you know, double everything and make everything sound as big and reverby and sort of just drenched in sound as possible. But it's still a very specific approach and it was taken very deliberately. And I think it's just a good reminder that 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 matters so much. You know, it's it's so much more than just, oh, put a disco beat behind it, play a kind of simple bass line, sing the melody and we're good. You know, there was a lot of care and thought put into how this was recorded and it shows just because nothing else sounds like this song. So that's enough about the production and the arrangement. Let's talk a little bit about the harmony, because the harmony and the intersection of harmony and melody, as I've mentioned, is a big part of what makes Dancing Queen sound so lush. So my sort of understanding of this song after learning it on piano and figuring it out is that the whole thing really revolves around these two bars. And the two bars are kind of this song's one perfect moment. I'm not going to tell you what they are yet, even though you've actually already heard them. Um, instead, I want to take us to the beginning of the journey toward that perfect moment, which actually starts after the intro, which plays the second half of the chorus, and at the verse. So let's just listen to the beginning of the verse and sort of and notice how they're using it as this kind of a table setting, as a sort of a reset. So if you start a song with the chorus, you know, you're starting at the peak of your energy. And if you're going to go to the verse, the verse is probably going to be lower energy. You need to bring people back somehow. I actually feel like those two bars, it's just like a little, it's going from A to D. It's maybe the least interesting two bars of the whole song, but that's on purpose, right? It's supposed to bring the energy level back down for the verse. So then the verse begins. The verse is pretty low key, but what they do that I really like is the vocals will sing a line and then the arrangement, either the keyboards or the strings or just the, somebody will play a response. So there's always a cool response to every phrase of the melody. So for the first phrase, of course, we get this really easy to hear synth line. Let's check that out. Friday night and the lights are low. That's definitely the most obvious response to a phrase, but after that, the piano just kind of gets more involved. So listen to the rest of this part of the verse and listen for each time the piano kind of echoes or picks up after the vocals. It's pretty cool to really pay attention to the piano part because Benny Anderson's piano playing is great on this whole tune. So 
So right there, you know, you have the piano and the strings kind of coming in there to really echo that ba da ba, which is really cool. Partly because that introduces the strings. The strings then come in on the second half of the verse, um, playing, you know, reinforcing the harmony in a kind of more noticeable way. So they're kind of brought up in the mix, and the other parts come down a little bit. Anybody could be And after that, it's time to set up the chorus, which means that it is time to talk about the chorus. Now, the setup to the chorus actually involves something important from the melody to the chorus and actually kind of the melodic key to unlocking this whole song. And that is a simple construction of notes that sounds like this. Now, I'm sure that you recognize that. That sounds like Dancing Queen, which is, you know, the main melody of this song. But actually, those three notes, that little, I guess it's kind of a motif, uh, turns up throughout the entire melody to this song, including in the setup to the chorus. So listen to the actual notes that they sing as they work their way into the first statement of that of that melody on the first chorus. So if you were listening, they actually did it three different times. First, they did it low, going into that F-sharp minor. Then they raised it up into the B minor that sets up the chorus. And then they finally arrived on it on the chorus. So you've got three instances of the same motif sort of developing and growing on top of one another in the space of a few bars, and then arriving at this grand, you know, entry point for the chorus. Now that same motif turns up throughout the chorus. The entire chorus is actually basically built out of it. So before we pick apart the chorus, let's actually just listen to ABBA perform the chorus to Dancing Queen. such a good chorus. So to pick apart why that chorus is so good, there are a couple of things to talk about. First, let's just talk about the way that the melody itself is constructed, because it's a very simple melody, but because it smartly continues the use of that motif, it holds together really well. So let's just go phrase by phrase and keep an ear out for that motif that I identified a little bit earlier. All right, so very straightforward. The motif repeats itself three times. Ba-da-ba, G-sharp to A. Each time, just right there. All right, the next phrase. All right, so that one develops it a little bit. First it restates the motif, and then it moves it up so that we're kind of going somewhere. We're moving up. So after that comes a little bit of a switch. They flip it kind of upside down, and they do a similar sort of shape, but moving down. And then they complete that phrase by taking that initial idea of sort of moving up a step, ba-da, and doing it three times in quick succession. 
So let's combine those two halves of that phrase and just hear that whole phrase together. And just notice how the first part of the phrase inverts the motif. Ba-da-da. And then the second part compounds the motif. Ba-da-ba-da-da. And goes faster. That, this phrase is the most important phrase in the whole song. So pay attention to that. And here's that phrase again. And then they close out very tidily by just restating the first phrase again. So that melody, while unexpectedly thoughtful and actually interesting considering how simple it is, is only half the story. If that, it's really less than half the story because the harmony underneath it, both the chords that are being played, you know, the bass line and the piano part, and then also the vocal harmony, which we'll talk about in a second, are really key to making this whole thing work and setting up that phrase that I said was the most important phrase, which, as it happens, contains the two bars that are basically this song's two perfect bars, the bars where this song comes home, where it really arrives. So let's listen to that harmony. Here is the first phrase again with the actual chords being played underneath it for context. And we are off to the lushness races. That's very lush sounding. Obviously, I'm playing that in a fairly, um, you know, lush way on the piano with the pedal down and everything. But really, it's, it comes down to the harmony. And that's for a simple reason. It's because this melody starts on the major seventh, which is a very lush and interesting sounding note. Now, back when we talked about Beyonce's single ladies, I talked a little bit about tension. And tension and resolution are sort of, you know, the yin and yang of harmonic uh, motion in Western music, I guess. Um, you know, a lot of chords want to go somewhere else. And we're sort of conditioned largely culturally just by the music that we hear to associate certain sounds with certain feelings and certain types of musical momentum. And when we hear some chords, we just naturally want to hear them resolve to another chord. The major seventh is is a really clear example of that because it's what's called a leading tone. So if you play up a major scale, you play all the way up to the second to last note, and then you just sit on it, it really wants to resolve, right? And where does it want to go? It wants to go back up to the tonic. It goes, wants to go back up to the top. So when you play up a major scale, you get to the seventh note, that's the major seventh, and you really want to resolve. Which means that Dancing Queen is built out of the fundamental, like the most basic resolution that exists in a major key. There's also the fact that by building the melody, you know, basing it so strongly on the major seventh, they're really emphasizing the major seventh, which itself is a very lush sound. The difference between a regular A major chord and an A major seventh chord is a significant amount on the lushometer, on the lushness scale, as we kind of know it. You know, a major seventh just adds a sort of amount of tension and richness to the note. So by making the melody involve the major seventh to the degree that it does, it really significantly just adds a level of lushness to the melody overall. So that phrase repeats itself, and then it, it builds up, as we talked about, it goes a little bit higher, and then they set up that third phrase, which is the sort of linchpin for the whole chorus. So that phrase, with the harmony, sounds like this. phrase kills me. It's so good. And I want to talk about why. So basically, this tune has been using a lot of very straightforward chords so far. It's mostly going between A and D, which is one and four. Then sometimes it goes to F sharp minor, which is the six minor. It's kind of a very common chord. There's not a lot of, you know, super thick harmony in this until this point in the chorus. So what happens is you start on an E chord, which is just an E chord with the melody playing over it. And then they go to a C sharp seven chord 
which has never happened in the tune before. So it's a different sound and it's a much more direct sound because C sharp seven wants to go to F sharp minor. So you've gone from E to C sharp seven, and then they resolve onto an F sharp minor, and then it walks down to a B chord over D sharp, which gives a little bit of a half diminished sound. You don't get in, need to get into what half diminished is, but it's a beautiful and very lush type of sound. And a B over D sharp is kind of, it kind of conjures a half diminished sound. So again, those chords are E to C sharp seven to F sharp minor to B over D sharp. And then one last cool harmonic trick that they do is they rephrase that melody and it's that same, the notes of the melody are the same G sharp to A that we heard at the beginning, but they change the chords underneath them so that instead of going A to D, it actually goes D to B minor and then it finally resolves once again on A to get ready for the next verse. So with all of that in mind, let's go back to the recording and start to pick apart those vocals because the melody and the harmony are great, but the vocal performance and actually the lyrics are the other key to the magic of this song. So let's listen to that first phrase and really pay attention to what the vocals are doing. So while the main melody is heading up and playing the phrase this way, the backup vocals actually, if you listen, they move down and they play a sort of mirror reflection of the same motif, but walking down. So together it sounds like this. Check it out and listen. cool backup part because how it informs the harmony and it also moves in opposition to the melody which is always nice that's called contrary motion contrary motion is always good in music and it just sounds nice to hear the vocals diverge in that way it also helps that the men are singing the lower part and it's kind of right there in their mix too you know it's these e's and d's and c sharp so it's a good point in the male register and their voice just cuts through in a slightly different way than the women who are singing the higher notes and then on the second phrase you know that's where the second phrase the main melody goes up and the backup part also goes up so let's listen to that second part which is actually kind of a subclimax of the harmony part So that time around, the harmony part kind of does something similar to the first time, but then it ends, it jumps up to that E, which is just kind of this triumphant, climactic note in the phrase. So from there, it is time to finally arrive at the climax of the song, the sort of linchpin of the entire endeavor, and that is this next line. You can dance, you can jive, having the time of your life. So a number of things happen to make that phrase, and specifically the line, having the time of your life, the emotional center, the heart of this song, and the whole arrangement works toward that end. So for starters, this is where the women, where Anna and Frida start singing and the men drop out. So immediately your ear is lifted and you're lifted up to just the top harmonies. You know, they're singing in harmony, but they're much higher. And that male voice has vanished from this phrase. So that's really important. Equally important is the fact that the women are in harmony at the beginning of the phrase, but then when they sing that line, having the time of your life, they move into unity 
unison. And that line is just delivered in unison. And then the last thing to keep in mind is that remember, this is going from E to C sharp seven to F sharp minor to B seven over D sharp. That F sharp minor chord, that's actually where they sing having the time of your life. Now there's a whole separate topic here on why a minor chord sounds sad and a major chord sounds happy, but I think it's not a, it's not an accident that in this song, the line having the time of your life is sung over an F sharp minor chord. It's not the happiest, most triumphant part of the song. It's actually a little bit wistful, but I think that's perfect because this song is so wistful. So listen to all of that. Listen to that phrase. Listen to the way that the vocals start kind of close together and then become unison. They just descend and they land perfectly on that having the time of your life line. just beautiful. It's such a beautiful phrase. It gives me chills every time I hear it. Um, there's one more really cool thing that happens coming out of this chorus, and that's that while the melody begins to wind down its phrase on having the time of your life, the strings actually pick up the phrase, and there's a kind of a cool handoff, almost like a, a handoff in a relay race that happens between the vocal melody and the string arrangement. And you can hear the string ar arrangement. They kind of pick up the ba -da 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 -da, and they keep going with it, and they head up as the vocals head down. So listen for that handoff and then that sort of diversions as the strings go up and the vocals go down. Did you hear it? It's sort of, it's actually doubled by a like vocal part and it, um, it moves up like this. Uh, when the melody goes down, listen one more time. I love that kind of handoff just because that's sort of, you know, vocals handing off to strings, sort of crossing the arrangement between the vocals and the rest of the band is always really cool when it's, it doesn't just feel like the band exists and the vocal track exists, you know, it's a more thoughtful way of creating uh, music. And I think that this is a very thoughtfully created song. And that's just sort of one more example of that. So, you know, that handoff sets up the final phrase, which as we talked about, it's the melody is the same as the phrase at the beginning of the chorus, but the chords are different. You know, it goes from that D to that B minor seven. Um, back to A, which is just a sort of lush, interesting way to end the phrase. And I think that closing phrase is kind of a perfect capper for the chorus, and also maybe an ideal capper for this analysis of Dancing Queen, because it captures something about the song that actually goes beyond the music and into the sort of bittersweet, nostalgic beauty of it. And it actually has to do with the lyrics. So listen to that final phrase and see if you can just focus on the lyrics and what they're really saying. that girl, watch that scene, dig in the dancing queen. I think those lyrics are beautiful and, and really important because they shift the perspective of the song. And I think that actually kind of shifts the meaning of the song. Um, I don't do a lot of lyric analysis on this show, kind of on purpose, because lyric analysis is like a whole other discipline, kind of. And, um, you know, I'm mostly interested in focusing on music. But I think the lyrics here really intersect with the harmonies and uh, the melody in a really beautiful way. So that perspective shift is important. It's really easy to miss. But a lot of the song is addressing you. Um, you know, it's it's 
you can dance, you are the dancing queen, are the, are the opening lyrics of the chorus. So the fact that the chorus this ends by actually moving away from that, and it's no longer about you, it's do you see that girl? Can you watch that scene? Suddenly you're an observer. And I think that that shift is really important because it captures what makes this song so beautiful and sad at the same time. Dancing Queen is a bittersweet song because it's a song about youth. It's about the beauty of youth. It's about just being 17 and just wanting to dance. And you know, you become royalty that that night as you're on the dance floor. But it's also about knowing that that won't last forever. And there's a feeling to this song of just this underlying bittersweet sadness. And it's, you know, it's the sadness of appreciating the beauty of youth because you're no longer that young and you can now see it, you know, through the lens of, of being a little bit older. And every aspect of the song serves to reinforce that theme. The way that it's recorded, this very lush, dense recording, it's also very big and kind of distant. It adds, there's so much reverb and sound on everything that it sounds a little removed from you almost like a dream, like you're looking back through time at something that you remember. The harmony as well, the way that those lush chords build this sort of rich existence, and most crucially, the way that when the singers sing Having the Time of Your Life, it finally lands on a minor chord, and it's actually, you know, a sort of sad and bittersweet part of the chorus. And then, of course, the way that they bring it out, right when they shift back to the major key, they also shift the perspective away from you embodying the dancer, and you're now looking at the dancer and you're just appreciating how young and beautiful she is and how beautiful everything that's happening is and just how beautiful it is to be young and on the dance floor. I think that that's really the secret of this song. It's just a mixture of, of beauty and sadness and I think that it's a very subtle sadness and it's almost hidden in the lyrics but it's there and you almost don't realize what you're hearing but it still has that effect on you and that's one of the reasons that Dancing Queen is the great song that it is and has endured for as long as it has. It's a wonderful song, and really, I can't say it enough, ABBA was an amazing band. So um, I really recommend going back and listening to this one. Uh, the link, of course, will be in the show notes, as always. And then go listen to some more ABBA, because, uh, yeah, they're a very, very fun group to listen to. That will conclude my thoughts on ABBA's Dancing Queen, a wonderful and lush song. I hope that I've given you a better appreciation for it. This is a longer episode than usual. I guess sometimes you just have a lot of thoughts about a song and you gotta go a little long to get them all down. Thank you so much, everyone who's been listening, who's been spreading the word. If you have time, leave us a review on the Apple App Store, wherever you're listening to the show. Spread the word, tell people about it. Email me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. Tweet at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. And I will be back in two weeks with yet another very, very strong song. Strong song.